Welcome to the Spacecraft Podcast, presented by Dan Moscrop and brought to you by them.co.uk, who provides specialist graphic design support for commercial architects, developers and interior designers. So as a bit of a departure from our typical terrestrial workplaces today, we thought we'd look at what it might be like to work on a different planet altogether. I'm here with Xavier de Castilla from Hassel Studio, someone I met a couple of weeks ago and never has the name Spacecraft been more appropriate than in today's conversation. <laughs> when I met Zav, and I'm sure you'll agree, I felt quite a boring person after talking to him because he's so interesting. Thanks for coming on. The stuff we want to talk to you about is you've sort of moved science fiction into reality. You've been working with both Fosters and Tassel Studio over the last few years at creating things that we might live on on the moon or Mars. Yeah, that's right. So I've I've done a few projects uh, looking at moon habitation and the latest one is now uh, Mars habitation. So looking at all the stuff that's happening with Elon Musk, SpaceX, Mars and definitely the moon becomes um, a viable location again to, to go to. Wow. So what what started you off in your sort of direction? I mean, I geeked out about space when I was a kid. I think we talked briefly about the fact that we used to draw endlessly space rockets when we were kids. But Well, it's a bit the same. Uh, I think for me, it kind of started when I was, I think I was like 13. And um, my dad took me to an exhibition in Brussels. And it was about space. Right. This was like late 80s. Uh, end of the Cold War, and both NASA and the Russians sent some stuff to the exhibition. NASA sent the, the, the blow-up uh, space shuttle. And then the Russians, what they did, they sent this training module of Mir, right? So their uh, space station. And you could walk in, and you could touch the buttons. You can. It was the real deal, right? Because it was the training module for the, for the cosmonauts. And I was completely blown away by it. So came home. And I took the uh, rapidograph pens from my sister. She's a, she was teaching geography, so she had these things. And I started making drawings. And uh, But it weren't science fiction drawings, really. I wanted to draw, like, the real thing. I was drawing sections of spacecrafts that I invented. But it was, like, really detailed and really nerdy about it. I was drawing the buttons and the wires and all that as well. I always thought, well, I'll become a space engineer. Uh, didn't happen. Became an architect. I think the drawing led, led me to architecture. Uh, but then years later, um, by some quirk of fate, I just ended up in space again. So how did that start within your architectural career? So at Foster's, you started off, was it the, the research? and? Well, I was always interested in uh, new ways of constructing, uh, robotics and 3D printing, and then at some point, I met a guy called Enrico Dini, who is one of the first people, he's like an inventor, and he invented the first large-scale 3D printer. It's quite a few years ago now, and he had a contract. Well, he actually had some connections with ESA, and they were interested in, like, could we use large-scale 3D printing on the moon, for example? And that's kind of what kicked it all off. So I guess there's obviously technical and uh, physical issues about building on the moon i think uh, having watched your ted uh, your ted talk you you sort of suggest that the, the the best place you could live on the moon is in a cave the big issue is on the moon and on mars is that you don't you get a lot of um, gamma radiation cosmic and uh, solar radiation we don't have that on earth because we have an atmosphere and very much so we have uh, magnetic poles so we have a shield. This is like an invisible shield around the Earth that really protects us. 
that doesn't happen on Mars, that doesn't happen on the Moon. So, um, so you need to protect yourself from all this radioactive radiation. And the best thing is, is to sit under a lot of mass. It's basically a cave. So think of it. Now going to another planet, what we need to do is becoming cave people again, you know. <laughs> so, but then it's very difficult to find a cave. So what we're looking at is can we actually 3D print our own cave, 3D print our own shell structure to go and live underneath. There's a great video, actually, um, you sent a link to, uh, and I'll put that on our blog as well. But what I thought was really interesting, obviously very smart, was that it's almost the printing aspect is like almost like a honeycomb shape. Yeah, that, that's just to look at to minimizing the amount of uh, printing you need to do. It doesn't make it lighter in a way, uh, but it just minimizes that amount of printing that you need to do. So, uh, so that helps because, you know, you want to print it fairly fast. It will take a long time. I think these shell structures are going to be weeks, probably months, really, yeah. to print them. And that will be done autonomously with robots uh, long before the astronauts come. Because you want the protection shield there, ready. Then when the astronauts come, they'll just bring their habitats, which are probably going to be inflatable pods. And they're going to be, you know, having a, um, a high-tech camping, let's say, underneath that shell. Because what they bring is super lightweight, inflatable... Uh, because anything you bring to Mars or the Moon is going to cost a lot, a lot of money. We talked uh, briefly about the uh, the International Space Station and how design impacted on that. By uh, Raymond Lamy uh, was involved in how to improve on things. That- I, it was actually on uh, Skylab. So, Skylab. Sorry. Uh, yeah. Raymond Lamy was the famous industrial American industrial designer, and he was brought in onto uh, design of Skylab. The engineers, when it was brought on, they, they really thought, well, what is he going to do? Like, choose the color? Right? Because, you know, this is space. This is, this is hardcore engineering, right? What is a, what is a designer, fluffy designer going to do there? And, but he did three things, which are absolutely fundamental. First thing he did, he gave the astronauts a private space, right? Because in the original version, they were just going to be sitting in a big tin can for months, flying around in low orbit with no private space. So it was the first thing, private space. Second thing he did, he gave them quite a fundamental thing, a table, so they could have a meal, face each other, having a conversation. So what did they have before that? Just Oh, they're just a little tray that flipped out from the sides of the space module. So they're just sitting next to each other, right? right? So... You know, not a great way to have a conversation, is it? And the third thing, which is I still think is astonishing, is that he put a window in. So in the original design, there was no windows in Skylab because the engineers didn't seem it necessary. It's too high risk. It's too complicated, too expensive. So you would have astronauts um, going around in orbit, never ever seeing Earth. Imagine that, right? And then... Fast forward now to the International Space Station, where you have the cupola, right? It's like the, f- the most famous spot. If you think about the International Space Station, everybody thinks about, was it Tim Hatfield, I think, with, the, with his guitar in front of the cupola. That cupola took 23 years to get installed from design to installation. It got cost-engineered out year after year. because said, oh, it's not really necessary. Now, all the astronauts do is spend time around that cupola. It's the most famous spot. In the, in the International Space Station. The reason I was asking is because um, whenever we see pictures of the future or space or the moon, you know, a moon pod, you get this sort of idea this is really sterile, sort of quite engineered environment. And 
obviously psychologically that's going to be quite damaging to anybody that's in that space. For the designs that we were doing now uh, with Hassel on um, the Mars habitat, I really asked myself that that question. You know, what is the interior going to look like? And we had two reference uh, frames. One was, well, look at what is out there for real now. Uh, International Space Station is terrible. Right, if you've seen pictures of it, you have it looks like being in, inside a machine, there's cables everywhere, there's uh, laptops stuck on the wall uh, with Velcro. It's a complete mess, right? I wouldn't want to spend much time there. The astronauts spend about six months there. And then you look at, for example, the science fiction uh, references. Each time you look at science fiction movies, everything is very clean, sterile, looks like a lab, right? And you have loads of corridors as well, which is always, I find it astonishing because the one thing you don't have in space is space, right? It's very expensive to have a lot of space. And I also don't think that that would be a great way uh, to live. It looks kind of cool, but really, do you want to live in like a, a lab-style environment? So I started thinking, well, as architects, we've been doing interiors and beautiful spaces for a very, very long time. We should look at our own references, Right. So if you look at our uh, habitat now, uh, if you zoom in, you kind of see like a little uh, sneak peek of how these astronauts might be living. And it looks like a beautiful living room somewhere, you know, nicely detailed. It has some uh, beautiful wood. Um, so what, why not have a, some wood in space? A bit more tactile uh, materials. So we think we, we should actually just use our skill of using designing beautiful spaces until now, until you've sort of created these visuals, you know, everything has been very science f- f- fiction. And we sort of talked about science fiction books as covers and everything's almost been imaginative. Um, we're also working with some scientists on another project and I know that they're detail focused. So it must be quite nice for them to actually have something they can actually almost understand and tactilely hold to see the actual reality of it. Well, it's quite interesting. Like, for example, yesterday I, I just had a little organized a little symposium where, because um, we're still working on our uh, Mars habitat design, and we invite a whole range of different experts, um, quite a lot of Martian scientists, right? But all these people are very much in their own silos. Right? They're, they're extreme experts in that one thing. You know, we have like uh, a Martian meteorologist yesterday there. Amazing. I didn't even know that existed, right? He knows everything about the, uh, what happens in the atmosphere of Mars. Storms happen vertically, by the way. I didn't know that. I know it now. Uh, <laughs> they, last, uh, they, they cover the whole of the planet and can last weeks. But it's then amazing when you come with a, with a design proposal that everybody can then start discuss and they open up their own little silos and start to understand how what they're thinking is really connected to... Other specialties, you know, because we had conversations between the Martian meteorologist and a space anthropologist yesterday. So, uh, yeah, when did those people ever meet, right? So, so this is the symposium, then, that's sort of uh, creating these connections now. Yes, it was. And because I think there's a lot of silos in, in, in space development, it's often the engineering that takes central to the development I think it should be the other way around. I think designers should have that central role and then bring in all the expertise of all the experts around us, right? That's what happens with buildings. Architects, we design buildings. We're not experts in anything. But what we're really good at is bringing in all these different and difficult parameters around us, you know, the structural engineering, the M&E constraints, uh, 
all these things, the, the planning constraints, somehow take all that together and come up with a great space, a great vision for building, right? And be able to work all these things out. That's what we're good at, right? Great generalists, I would say. And I think in space, it's not different. If we design space habitats, it should not be just pure engineering endeavor. It should be design-driven. So on the design front, what are the greatest challenges for producing something on the moon or Mars? Oh, it's because we don't know enough about it. Normally when you build somewhere on Earth, you can go, you have <laughs> go to the site, start off with. <laughs> you can do some testing, do some drilling, you can have, you know... You, you you have so much knowledge about it. On Mars, it's very, very difficult. And there's conflicting views still, right? Like even yesterday, I was asking, well, I was interested in the Martian soil. Is it very angular or very round? Because that would abrase our... If it's very angular, a lot of abrasion on our Mars robots, Martian robots. So I asked the question, I had two completely different answers from two experts so you go like well yeah you know there's still a lot of stuff to figure out i think that's the hardest stuff but i found it also quite intriguing because the the environmental constraints are so much harsher although i use the same logic and the same thinking when i design a building an office building we might calculate how much sun actually comes into the building right how the um, shadow is now that's just for sunlight if I'm doing it on Mars, it's not about the sunlight, it's about solar radioactive rays. So it's kind of the same thinking, but one of them is quite deadly. The other one just gets a bit hotter than you, than you, than you hope for, right? <laughs> so it's very different, but it just kind of makes you so aware how important all these design parameters are. You mentioned that you'd been speaking to somebody, uh, I think at Cranfield, about bamboo. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Thinking about, you know, if you live on Mars, the first thing people think, well, maybe we need to grow our own food there. You know, I don't think that's going to happen that quickly because um, you need a lot of space to do that. Think about, uh, you know, back in, was it in the 80s or the early 90s, bi- Biosphere 2? Remember how big that thing was? Like, to provide food for about 10 people, I think. So, um, you need a lot of space. So I wasn't really thinking of growing a lot on, on Mars. But then I met Professor David Cullen from um, University of Cranfield, and he talked to me about growing bamboo. And I was like, well, why do you want to grow bamboo? But then, but then I kind of figured it out. Yes, of course, because I can build stuff with bamboo. I can maybe build some paneling. Maybe I'm building a new chair out of it. Maybe I can fix uh, one of my science racks with bamboo. It's a really good material, a structural material. You know, we built scaffolding with it in, in, in Asia. So why not? You know, because you know what the cost would be to fly a piece of, you know, just a str- an aluminium strut, for example, to Mars mm. while I can grow it. So think about this. this there might be a, a new way of imagining these habitats internal as well maybe there are some bamboo made chairs you know maybe these astronauts really grow stuff themselves and they uh, have a little workshop where they go and start making stuff so it might not all be that that clean and shiny what we used to from the uh, science fiction movies Um, so there might be a complete new aesthetic 
coming out of that. So more of a Robinson Crusoe, I think you said. <laughs> yeah, like a weird somehow Robinson Crusoe meets a spaceship kind of thing. Like you forget that they're properly going to be frontiersmen. You know, it's well, and and the, the frontier is look at the in the US. The, the, you know, what's going out west? They had to do whatever they they had. So that's why there's a certain aesthetic to that as well, right? They went west, the only thing they had is the trees around them and everything else and whatever they took with them. So that's how they start building and constructing. So maybe it's it's a bit like that as well in space. We need to kind of make do what we have over there or start growing stuff. Coming back a little bit to the beaky sort of the, the geeky days of, of when I was absolutely obsessed with space, you must have met some incredible people through NASA. It's quite amazing when you when you uh, you know start this this kind of work. You need to meet a lot of people because you know we only know that much. I think one of the the most interesting ones uh, visits I did was to the European Astronaut Centre, right? And I was really quite amazed. What I saw was there was this big screen showing the schedule of the astronauts, right? And it was I think it's in slots of. 10 to 15 minutes. So their six months is completely scheduled, right? So they are, everything is scheduled. There's no kind of downtime. downtime. <laughs> no, absolutely not. No, no, no. It's always scheduled because their time is thousands and thousands of, of pounds an hour. And then speaking to uh, the head of the European Astronaut Center, uh, Frank de Winne, he was the uh, commander in um, of the International Space Station. I think he was the first European commander even of it. He explained to me that you know astronauts are really good operators, and that is true. What they're good at is getting instructions and doing exactly what those instructions are, and and doing that for months at a time. And that's kind of yeah, that's that's quite amazing to meet people like that. How they are so focused um, in in their task, really. It's quite interesting when you think about the first people that are going to be out there to either Moon or Mars. Because you'd think it's probably going to be a slightly different type of person you might need. You know, you're probably going to need quite creative people, I would think. After people have started to establish, you're going to need big thinkers out there. Well, this is an interesting point. Like, like compare it to um, uh, something I, I compare Mars habitats a lot to is the British Antarctic Survey and their Halley 6 station. So yesterday on our symposium, we had David Goodger there. He's one of the people that lives, I think his his tally of being on in the Arctic is 560 days now, and he's going back. And um, and he was explaining to us something that I found quite interesting. He said, the people that are on the, on the uh, Arctic base, Halley 6, they're not your top scientists, right? It's not them, because they are specialists in this tiny, tiny, tiny thing. He said, the people that you need there are people that... Are, often engineers that can operate uh, science experiments, but they can also fix stuff. So you have to have people that, that can do some welding, that can do this, that, 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 can, that can do so many different things. So you have to have people that are not just specialists in one thing. You have to have people that are good at almost anything, right? And that just don't make do, you know, because if something goes wrong, you have to find a way to fix it. Even on Halley 6, there's no resupply, I think, for months during the winter. You just have to do what we have there. There's no way out. You know, you can't get evacuated from it. If you need uh, an operation or, or you break a leg, that's a major, major thing there. So it has to happen with the people that are there. That's it. 
So architects are pretty good at pretty much everything. So we're going to start populating different planets with architects. Well, I'm not too sure about that. that. <laughs> <laughs> what sort of timeline are we looking at for things like mo- the moon? I imagine the moon's first. Um, yeah, so the International Space Station is pretty old now. They're going to retire it. I think the timeline is now 2024, well, maybe soon. 2028 soon. or something. But it's pretty soon, right? It's a few years away. And then they're now planning for a low-orbit uh, station around uh, the moon. So that would be the next step. That is now being those contracts out in the States to start building and designing that. And then probably next step will be a moon base. And the next step will be probably Mars base. But it's a very difficult endeavor to do all these things. It's, uh, you know, imagine this like the International Space Station just hovers above us at about 400 kilometers distance. It's not that far. The moon is then a thousand times that distance, about 300,000 kilometers, I think. But then Mars is a thousand times that distance. So the complexity is immense. For example, there's no direct communication between Mars and Earth. You'll never have direct communication. It'll take, I think it's roughly between five minutes and 20 minutes delay. So there's no way to, to call home. No way you can do that. You, you can't have a Skype. You can't have a conversation anymore with anybody on Earth. That's it. You have a massive delay. So whatever, if there's a, an emergency, you're on your own. You can't rely on backup, even you know people talking to you or giving you information. It's not possible. It will take 20 minutes. So when you look at these beautiful uh, drawings and visuals for the, uh, the the Mars modules and and certainly the Moon ones as well, they both look they look aesthetically really beautiful as well. Where where do you get your inspiration from for those? I don't think it's a such inspiration. It's just a certain methodology and rigor, I think, in design. For example, if you look at our latest design um, for Mars the habitats, they look quite sleek. I would say. And they look quite natural. You know what that is? Because we didn't really draw them. We didn't draw those shell structures. What we did, we were working with engineers from Exley O'Callaghan, ESC, and they helped us form find the shells, the, the shell structures. It's a little bit like how Gaudi designed uh, his buildings. You know, you know, you might have seen these these uh, images, but he used to make hanging chain models. So he used to take a, a chain, just take a chain, and you just hang it. Now, if you would freeze that geometry and flip it upside down, that would be the ideal structure for only having compression in your arch. That would be the perfect arch, structural wow, arch. I didn't know that. So, yeah, so there's these beautiful drawings, um, beautiful models, really, where you have all these chains um, hanging, and that is how he designed it. Right, so we did the same thing. We just did it digitally because we wanted to have these shell structures to be only under compression forces. Because you know we're going to center or microwave this regolith together, be a bit like rubbish concrete. It will take good compression forces, but it would be really bad in bending and tension forces. So is it is it is it glued at all, or is it just? No, we, we we're looking at different different things. Uh, we're probably going to microwave it together. Or you could use uh, you heat it together and sinter it together. So there's diff- different ways of doing it. But it might still be quite a brittle material. Yeah. But a brittle material is great under compression forces. So that's why we designed it, that the whole structure is only under compression forces. 
and uh, we use so we use what we do is we, we take the, the shape and we put negative gravity on it almost right so you actually kind of it's a little bit like inflating and uh, the whole structure kind of pops up and gives us that optimum uh, shape so it's not that i sit there so like, no a bit higher a bit lower no it actually gives us the result from a pure engineering perspective so it's coming out of functionality rather oh yeah than absolutely aesthetic. absolutely and i think when you do that you you suddenly get really natural beautiful shapes because it somehow is related to natural phenomena almost like the fibonacci sequence it's there's, there's yes, something exactly beautiful it's something about natural it. about it that's how we're doing it so we really use forces almost to design it. Even the internal pods, right? So we have these little inflatable pods where the astronauts will live in. We're not drawing them. We're actually inflating them digitally. So uh, the guys in the studio just have um, the tools to digitally, they kind of, it looks like a little thing on, the, on the flat, like a bit of geometry, and then they digitally inflate it. And you see the whole thing going, blowing up, blowing up until... It has a certain shape, and then we're happy with it or not, and then we kind of redesign the bag almost, right? And then inflate it again until we're kind of happy with it. Amazing. So the symposium yesterday, I mean, you've got some of the most amazing minds in a room, I imagine, yesterday. It was pretty good fun, yes. What, what, was, <laughs> what was the most incredible things that you can actually share that, uh, that came out of yesterday? yesterday? Other than the vertical <laughs> storms. <laughs> There are, well, that was quite amazing things. Like, for example, there was Ruth, who's um, Ruth Bamford. She is a specialist in radiation. And she was explaining us how we, instead of just having a shell structure to live under, we could also have an active system where we create an electromagnetic field around our base. Like, literally like Star Trek. Right? <laughs> that you have a shield wow, so <laughs> around a the base. Field, or is it? It's it's an invisible field, an electromagnetic field that would kind of you know bounce off the uh, the radioactive particles. That was really fascinating. I think like yeah, we we could do that. Uh, we might do that for certain you know when we have solar storms or something like that that we like turn on the the shield. So stuff like that. Uh, I also enjoyed having anthropologists around. You know, Jiva and Aaron uh, from UCL. The anthropologists around space, right? So they're looking on how the anthropology of astronauts. And that I found fascinating because think about this, for example. In the International Space Station, I know it's kind of a, an international endeavor, right? You have NASA, ESA, Japanese Space Agency, and Russians. You know they all still have their own little side in the space station? It's all divided up, like on Earth, it's you not get your own one little countries. Station. You get your own little country, like uh, the Russian bit is over there to hang out in that bit. Yeah. They have the best so, feud in the, Jap- the Japanese bit. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was thinking, like, but what is going to happen when we go to Mars? Are we still going to do that? Because we didn't design the Mars base with having, like, you know, the American bit, the, the European bit. We designed it as one habitat. So I hope when we go to Mars, we suddenly can become less device about it. And we'd like, you know, we're a species on another planet. Right. Imagine if we go to another planet, we find some aliens, and they're completely separated as well. I think it would be the weirdest thing, yeah. right? Yeah. We never think that way. If we would, you know, see another species, that they would also be somehow connected to a little bit of ground on their planet, and their identity is completely defined by that little space. 
it feels really backward, doesn't it? Especially when you put it, it in simple it totally terms. It totally does. You know, like especially for myself, even you know, I'm Belgian, lived my whole life, well, for 17 years now in in London, and I find it really odd sometimes to be somehow defined by you know a piece of country. You know, really yeah, odd. I, I find that it is bizarre. <laughs> yeah, the um, I remember the moon landing astronauts talking about how unified they felt when they looked yeah. at the world, and how oh, crazy yeah. it must have been to come back to that. Yeah, it's it's you know looking back to Earth hasn't had an, a, a fundamental effect on all the astronauts. So when you look at things like the Martian, is that just completely fictional bull? No, it's actually. Pretty accurate. Um, well, the the great thing is when I did the first Mars uh, Habitat project, I gave the book to my whole team, and then we did the project. And when the project was finished, the movie came out. So it was like perfect timing. It's really accurate. There's one thing which isn't that quite accurate. Is the opening scene? Is that the Matt, storm? The storm. Matt it's Damon not would not enough. be blown away because in uh, Mars you do have really high. Uh, wind high velocity storms 200 kilometers an hour but because the atmosphere is much much thinner a 200 kilometer wind would feel like a 30 kilometer wind which is not that fast so imagine that so you would you know matt damon would not be blown away at all he could never be blown away storms like that do not happen but you know what other things are actually really accurate like even yesterday in a symposium one of the scientists told me, um, oh, yeah, he actually did the calcs for the mass and the engines they show on the uh, launch vehicle. Because, like, yeah, yeah, it's pretty accurate. It's, it's, they've got it right. So they really went through a lot, a lot of detail. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's very accurate, except Matt Damon cannot be blown away. <laughs> I guess the, the, the actual figures and the, the, the actual calculations involved in stuff like that is almost incomprehensible for mere mortals like us. Just as an aside, uh, Interstellar, have you seen that as a film? I, of course I have. I love that film. Because, it, again, they've gone into so much detail about black holes and time. Yeah. And I, I, I've, I've got the book about the science behind it, and yeah. my brain fried about page four. <laughs> yeah, I think and how they visualised the the, yeah. the black hole and all that is is, is pretty amazing. And I've seen, I've seen a talk about it as well, on how they've done it and how they try to be as accurate as possible. I just love this whole idea that they, uh, they really brought in uh, relativity you know going onto the surface of a very heavy planet or something and then the, the time would actually slow down or quicker for the for the other astronauts that were in orbit you know, it's not all super accurate but that concept is accurate you know you've got the uh, the twins in the twin astronauts uh, the nasa astronauts so one actually stayed on earth one went in orbit identical twins i think one is now a fraction of a second older than the other one and he's a bit taller as well because he was in space or something like that. <laughs> so I think that's absolutely amazing that these things are actually real, right? There's that other element as well, isn't there, about, you know, when, as you said, you're in space, but there's going to be huge different, hugely different things happen to us bodily yeah. if we're on Mars or when we're on, on the yeah, moon. Exactly. Like, well, in, in microgravity, so if you're in orbit around, uh, for example, in the ISS, you need to do a lot, like hours of workout, mm. you know, to keep your muscles okay. going to be... On Mars, we have one-third of gravity, right, of Earth gravity. So think about the moon is one-sixth. So you know how you bounce around on the moon, right? Mm. It's less of that effect. It's half of it. So, okay. so if you jump up 
on uh, Earth, then you can jump up 20 centimeters. On Mars, you would jump up uh, 60 centimeters. On the Moon, you would jump up a meter, uh, almost a meter and a half. So it's it's kind of uh, different. So, I mean, it sounds like this is all starting to happen within our lifetimes, and I'm saying that as a 44-year-old man, but uh, <laughs> and, and, and well, an optimistic one at that. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm just hopeful that somehow in my career, my lifetime, something like this will happen, that we are back on another planet, on the moon. Because if you think about it, in, in human history, this is probably one of the coolest things ever happened, that we yeah, actually yeah. left our own planet. Think about it, right? And thinking that, you know, the first moon landing, I wasn't even born yet. So um, that's how crazy it is. It is insane. I mean, obviously, I would imagine your ambition would be to go and visit one of your buildings on the moon. It's, it's rather dangerous now, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's it. I, I want to design it. one. <laughs> All up for that. Uh, to go, it's, if you look at it, it is really, really dangerous and hard and difficult. Uh, that was really, really interesting. It's uh, mind-blowingly interesting, I think. You've been listening to the Spacecraft Podcast, presented by Dan Mosscrop, brought to you by them.co.uk, who provides specialist graphic design support for commercial architects, developers, and interior designers. We'll be back with another episode soon, so please subscribe and keep listening.